This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America on this U.S. politics edition of the program. In a historic vote, the Senate confirms Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the highest court in the country. She becomes the first black woman to ascend to the U.S. Supreme Court. President Joe Biden announces the release of one million barrels of oil per day for the next six months from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And what was former President Donald Trump doing for seven hours and 37 minutes on January 6, 2021, the day a violent mob of his supporters stormed the U.S. Capitol? Hello again. I'm Carol Castiel. These are just a few of the issues dominating the political landscape that we will discuss with our veteran political analysts. On Thursday, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Linda Thomas-Greenfield spearheaded and succeeded in efforts to get Russia suspended from the U.N. Human Rights Council over atrocities it has been accused of committing in Ukraine. Russia's depredations in Ukraine have prompted President Biden to ratchet up severe and immediate economic sanctions on Moscow. Washington is banning American investment, fully blocking the country's largest financial institutions and targeting assets held by Russian President Vladimir Putin's adult daughters. Prior to these measures, the United States, in concert with allies in NATO and the EU, have imposed a raft of other punishing sanctions. And in a rare moment of bipartisan agreement, Congress passed a law to codify President Biden's decision to ban imports of oil, gas and coal from Russia. They also passed a separate bill revoking permanent normal trade relations with Russia. Lawmakers are now on a two week congressional recess. Well, for more on these and other issues, including President Biden's plan to rescind a COVID-era rule that may precipitate an influx of migrants at the southern border, we turn to John Fortier, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a conservative think tank here in Washington, and Jim Kessler, executive vice president for policy at Third Way. That's a center-left policy group also based here in Washington. And they join me via Microsoft Teams. Gentlemen, as always, welcome to the program. Let's first go to you, John Fortier. Let's take a moment to reflect on the historic vote to confirm the first black woman to the U.S. Supreme Court. John, what are your thoughts about this moment? Ketanji Brown-Jackson garnered three Republican senators' votes, all 50 Democratic senators. She will be replacing a liberal justice, therefore not really changing the balance of the court. Let's get a sense of your thoughts about this moment. Well, I think there are three things to take away from this. One, there is this historic moment of the first African-American woman who will sit on the court, confirmed now will take office this summer. Second, the continuing of some very partisan trends with respect to particularly Supreme Court nominations. We've seen in the past not perfect deference across the aisle, but certainly eras where the minority party would support a president's nominee for the Supreme Court, even if they disagreed with him, just as a sense of it's the turn of the president to appoint someone. We don't really have much ability to affect this and a number of votes going that way. We've seen that trend change dramatically. And I will say Democrats very strongly have held together and been against many of the Republican nominees. Joe Biden in the Senate was somebody who's voted against quite a few Republican nominees. But you see here in the Republican Senate, just a handful three Republican senators supporting the nomination here. I think that's likely the future. or That's the world that we're going to be living in, that nominees are going to get very few votes from the opposite party. And then finally, I guess I'd say in some ways, this is a little non-consequential, not that 
people don't get worked up about the tenor of the hearings and how it goes. But this was a nomination that wasn't going to affect the balance of the court. And while still contentious is not the battle royale that we might see or have seen sometimes when it seemed like this would be a change in philosophy from the justice leaving to the new person or a change in the majority. So in that sense, something of a status quo as we go forward. Turning to you, Jim Kessler, for your take on this historic confirmation, you may want to comment on the fact that the confirmation did come after intense and controversial hearings. And some analysts say that they may be more about the upcoming 2022 midterm elections or even the 2024 general elections than ascertaining Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson's qualifications in light of some of the questioning from the Republican senators. On the positive side, this is a great day, I believe, for America, her confirmation. And, you know, there's a promise in this country, there's a promise of opportunity and a promise that anybody can rise to the top that there's a lot of doubts about whether that's really true in reality. And now, like, this is another reason that any young boy or young girl in America, no matter the race, ethnicity, where they're from, that there's a possibility that they can rise to the top. And she is a historic figure. And I think for a lot of people, she gives them hope for their own lives. And congratulations to her. You know, I agree with John that this was a contentious hearing. I think it was a needlessly contentious hearing. She is clearly a qualified candidate. In decades past, she would probably have gotten 60 votes, 70 votes, maybe 90 votes. But that era is over now. To a certain extent, both parties are a little bit to blame. I think that the coup de grace was Merrick Garland when President Obama nominated Merrick Garland and he couldn't even get a hearing or a vote to be a Supreme Court justice. And I believe now we have an era where no president will be able to get a Supreme Court justice through if the other party controls the Senate. And that is sad, but I think that is now the reality. Back to you, John Fortier. Let's just briefly talk about the issues that hang in the balance on the Supreme Court. Abortion rights, gun safety legislation, affirmative action, but particularly abortion rights. We're seeing a number of Republican-led states that are passing very restrictive laws. And the Supreme Court will be taking up a case in the coming weeks that given the conservative makeup of the court, a six to three conservative majority, as we said, Katanji Brown-Jackson, who would be replacing Stephen Breyer, is not going to change that ideological balance, that the court could even overturn the landmark Roe v. Wade decision that ruled that a state law that banned abortion was unconstitutional. What do you think the chances are that this landmark ruling Roe v. Wade could be overturned by the Supreme Court? And if so, what are the implications for even the upcoming midterms? Well, as you mentioned, Ketanji Brown-Jackson joining the court isn't going to affect the answer to that question. We have a Republican-appointed majority, conservative majority, that you know six members have been appointed by a Republican presence. There's a question of whether they will, there is a case before the court, they will rule on it, but whether they decide narrowly or not decide to move forward or decide in a much broader way. You mentioned sort of striking down Roe v. Wade altogether. That would essentially mean that states would have free reign into what sort of laws that they were going to pass regarding abortion. I don't know the answer to how far they will go. I think conservatives on the court have seen their majority there for a while and have been shocked that the court hasn't moved a little faster. So we'll see if the court moves in some direction. There's certainly the possibility, though, that there's a a ruling in the middle. To the extent that they open up more territory, it's both controversial. I think, you know, on both sides of the aisle, there's strong feelings. It's not clear to me that there will be political implications one direction or the other. But there could be very strong sets of debates in 50 states. This is not a ruling that's just going to affect 
affect the particular state at hand. It's going to potentially open up all 50 states to having suits. There's movement in both directions as the types of laws that states are going to want to pass. So I think it could be consequential. But I'm not one who sees a political message coming from this as, as one that's absolutely clear. And the court isn't necessarily going to be 100 percent clear on this, but may sort of move the goalposts a bit, but not the whole way. Jim Kessler, with your finger on the pulse of Democrats and even moderate Republicans and Republican women, what do you think the consequences would be, you know, should the conservative court strike down or greatly weaken an already weakened Roe v. Wade decision? What are the implications? So first, Carol, I believe that overturning Roe v. Wade is now inevitable. I don't know if it is going to happen this summer with the Supreme Court ruling. It may be a more narrow ruling. There's the potential, though, that this is the time that they will vote to overturn it. If not now, then it will be soon in a subsequent case. There are cases coming up that would directly challenge it. The political implications, this is going to be an earthquake. How it shakes out, not entirely clear But abortion in many states will go from being a constitutional right to a crime of murder. And there will be people who will be going to jail for having an abortion that was legal and was a right today or, you know, months previously. And what that does to women voters, we'll see. I'm sure for many women voters, this will be galvanizing. One out of every five pregnancies in America ends in an abortion. Abortion is not an uncommon thing that happens. It's an uncommon thing that we talk about, but it's not an uncommon thing that happens. So for the roughly you know million abortions that occur every year in a lot of states, that could soon be a crime. The only qualification I would offer to that is I think it could be very consequential, especially if we're talking about, as Jim mentions, the case that goes really the whole way. But just to be clear, even the most vociferously pro-life states, they are enacting criminal laws, but they're not for the people who would seek the abortions, but they're for the people who would perform them. That still may have the effect of changing the access, the behavior, and that can be quite significant. I mean, the second thing, I don't mean to minimize this because I do think there will be a big political uproar and 50 states will have to decide what to do. But again, all 50 states will not be doing the same thing. And so many states will land in different places. But there will be some places in the country where the ability to get an abortion will be much more difficult if we were to overrule Roe v. Wade altogether, which I guess I don't absolutely expect in this case, but certainly chipping away at it or moving down the road or or a case down the road, as Jim indicates, is certainly possible. I just want to comment on that because while right now most of the states, the laws that they're passing are aimed at the person who performs an abortion, That is the moment that we're at right now. What I am seeing in these states is abortion laws that are becoming more and more extreme, anti-abortion laws that go into bounty hunting. And the idea that someone who performs an abortion is committing a crime, but the person who chooses to have an abortion is not committing a crime, or the person who takes that person to have an abortion is not a crime, that is nonsensical. And I think in these states, which are very strong pro-life majorities in their legislatures and are Republican-run states, they're going to pass laws that are going to have to turn all of these into crimes. You can't just have the performance of it be a crime and not the seeking of it being a crime. We just don't have laws like that. That's not the way our system works. What's interesting is that many countries overseas are actually allowing more pro-choice, you know, more abortions to be performed. So it looks like the United States is going the other direction. 
You're listening to Encounter on The Voice of America. Our guests are John Fortier, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and Jim Kessler, executive vice president for policy at Third Way. And we are discussing the top issues dominating the U.S. political landscape. This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on our website at voanews.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter at Carol Castiel VOA or connect with us on Facebook. Well, here's a shout out to a new Facebook fan, Osofu Eugene, a young lady who attends the University of Cape Coast in the great nation of Ghana. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to encounter at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. Well, gentlemen, let's turn now to President Biden and his poll numbers and all kinds of issues bedeviling the uh, administration. John Fortier, despite strong jobs growth, low unemployment numbers, we are seeing inflation, rising food and fuel prices. They seem to be overshadowing these triumphs and foreshadow a rough midterm election particularly for Democrats, as we've discussed at these microphones. So what are your thoughts on President Biden's situation? He's dealing with a war in Ukraine. Some are really praising him on both sides of the aisle, particularly the Democrats, that he's dealing very well, galvanizing our allies, imposing sanctions. But of course, we see the effects on fuel prices, banning Russian energy, even though we don't import near as much as the Europeans. Some blame his unprecedented stimulus efforts. With respect to inflation, what are we seeing? We're seeing more of the same. You're right that lots of the underlying day-to-day events have changed. But since the early fall, President Biden's numbers have really gone down pretty significantly. They're in the low 40% range and the low 40s. And that's not a very good number at all for a president. We've talked about this on this show before plenty of times. And in some ways, we're still in that same position. Some people think he might be doing better on Ukraine, but worse on the economy. But all of that shakes out to a president that doesn't have a lot of support now. Those numbers traditionally would lead to some very significant losses in the midterm elections. And I don't see any reason to change that. Right now, we have extremely narrow majorities in both houses and good chances for Republicans to pick up a good number of seats in both houses and take the majorities. I don't want to say there's little the president can do, but the improvement of the economy or good events that came from the outside and made the American people feel good about the world that they're still feeling sour about, partly post-COVID, partly inflation, a lot of the things you mentioned, those things are hard to turn around and perhaps they will. But if things remained as they are today, just as we've been saying for the last five, six months, it really does portend poorly for the president going forward. And we're getting into campaign season at least the primaries where these things will be debated. So Jim Kessler, just as John said, Biden's poll numbers still are hovering in the low to mid 40 percent range, despite all the good news. You know that. But is there anything President Biden or the Democrats can do? Or do you foresee also a big loss, not just in the House? But what about the Senate? Is there any possibility the Democrats could prevail there with regard to the midterms? I'm on team pessimism for Democrats for a couple of reasons. One is normal for a president in the first midterm after being elected is essentially the congressional races that follow. You shave 12 points off of the president's performance. That's what happened in 94 with Bill Clinton, 2010 Barack Obama, and 2018 under Donald Trump. And if that happened uniformly across the board, Democrats would lose 36 House seats and they would lose five Senate seats. It doesn't happen uniformly across the board. Some folks do better, some folks do worse. 
But those are substantial losses. They would shift both houses of Congress to the Republican side. The other reason is, look, there's some very good economic news for Biden, but there's one bad piece of economic news, and that's inflation. And inflation, that's a bad one to have. I am pretty convinced that inflation will continue through the November midterms. There was a possibility pre-Ukraine and pre-COVID outbreak in China that they were working through supply chain issues. The Fed would be able to raise some rates and engineer kind of a soft landing. Ukraine and the disruptions it's going to have to the world economy, and particularly oil and gas prices, I just think that locks it in for the year. So it will be tough. A lot of things are going well for the president. Jobs numbers are going well. Businesses are opening up. COVID fatalities have declined. 218 million people are vaccinated. And Russia is having a disastrous invasion of Ukraine, in part thanks to the leadership of Joe Biden, warning about the invasion early, lining up allies, imposing very, very strong sanctions. But I'm just not sure those things are going to help him in the midterms. We need to talk about two more issues. So back to you, John Fortier, the Title 42. President Biden said he would lift this particular measure, which is an order which was implemented back in March 2020 by the Centers for Disease Control in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And both Trump and Biden administrations used it to expel a majority of migrants at the southern border. Now, the CDC said that there's no longer any rationale for it. But politically speaking, this could be very dicey. Another problem for Democrats and even many Democratic senators are against this. They're concerned about their elections in November. What's the fallout from this? Look, under the bad numbers for Joe Biden, there's some categories of issues that are usually favorable to Republicans. Worries about crime and worries about immigration. Immigration has become an issue that's much more divisive between the parties and one that you see the Biden administration is really having a difficult time controlling it illegal immigration at the border. This is not the one silver bullet policy that either good or bad with this, but it is a tough haul for the Biden administration and that much of its base is really very pro-immigration, really wants to support immigrants and new immigrants in this country and Republicans who are very strongly against this. All I would say is, you know, I think this is not great timing that the president is going to have to deal with this issue because there's divisions in the party. And there is also an interesting special election race on the border. We saw South Texas really move pretty strongly towards Republicans. This is a very Hispanic, somewhat rural region, but it's on the border and they have sort of mixed feelings about all of the people coming across the border. And so this race, I think, will be an interesting test for the Biden administration as to how it's handling policy, but also how the possibility of Republicans gaining some traction in the Hispanic community in the U.S., even with respect to some issues regarding immigration. Jim Kessler, many analysts would say that whether you repeal or maintain this rule, the so-called Title 42 with regard to migrants at the southern border. This is just another byproduct of a broken immigration system, a lack of bipartisan good faith to fix it. Nonetheless, what about the timing of this by the Biden administration? Is this sort of a self-inflicted wound? I mean, right before the midterms, knowing full well that the Republicans would use this to continue to characterize Democrats as opening floodgates, which is not true. But nonetheless, there are concerns of an increase at the border, and that just plays into Republican hands. Yes, it's a self-inflicted wound. There's an old Boy Scout motto, be prepared. This is an unprepared action. So first, just on the policy, of course, Title 42 needs to be repealed at some point. I don't know what the right timing is. It was a temporary measure put in place 
having to do with COVID. The COVID crisis is largely over in America, so it needs to go. But in its place, you need to have a real strong plan that is dealing with the border as much as you can with executive actions. And there just doesn't seem to be a plan there. I mean, if there is a plan, they haven't really put it out. It is indicative of our broken politics on immigration. So basically, there have been bipartisan efforts to pass comprehensive immigration reform in 2006, 2013, and in 2017, when Donald Trump and Senator Dick Durbin, a Democrat, had an agreement in the White House. For the most part, every time the Republicans backed out. What we have now is for both parties, the way the issue has become polarized, it is better for Republicans if there is no comprehensive immigration reform and that there's chaos at the border and that they can go down there and take selfies and show that the border is out of control. And there are enough Democrats in very, very blue districts who really don't care about border enforcement at all. So until you get to the point where it is in both parties' interests to solve the problem rather than posture about the problem, it's going to be left to administrations to deal with it with very antiquated laws and very antiquated tools. And that's what Biden is faced with. Before we close very quickly, let's talk a bit about the January 6th committee, the committee to investigate the January 6th attack, considered the worst attack on the Capitol in 200 years. Some news, the House voted to find Trump allies, Peter Navarro and Dan Scavino, in contempt of Congress for not cooperating with the investigation. Their referrals will be sent to the Justice Department. Ivanka Trump, the former president's eldest daughter and senior advisor and her husband, Jared Kushner, testified in front of the committee. And then, of course, the famous seven-hour and 37-minute gap John Fortier, on the White House call log on the very day of that violent insurrection. The January 6th committee is trying to reconstruct the definitive story about that dark day, and they are concerned about a potential attempt to manipulate the record. But just your take on where things stand and the significance of these developments. You know, I don't have anything good to say about what happened on January 6th. There is more to know about the story, but the big outlines haven't changed. And the president's behavior in terms of encouraging and not discouraging people from pushing forth the Capitol and what was actually done on January 6th, the people who went in, all of that were right to condemn. The one thing I do want to push back on is people are making something of this seven and a half hour gap. And I don't think we have any evidence that there's any covering up or hiding of calls. There are systems within the White House that could point to this being a very normal thing. So I think people are speculating at a very early stage. I wouldn't hang my horse on that, but this is something that's going to go forward. We're going to hear more about this from witnesses, but we're not going to have really agreement on the process for how we're investigating. And I fear we're probably not going to have much agreement at the end on on what to do. Jim Kessler, you get the last word on these developments and with regard to the seven hour and 37 minute gap. Yeah, I smell a rat about those missing seven and a half hours. Uh, January 6, 2021 was the most reprehensible day in the history of the White House in our nation's history. And I don't think you can assume that anything that happened or that is missing there is benign. Look, I think what the January 6th Commission is doing is very important. The reason there isn't Republican buy-in is because the Republican Party is a Trump party now with a few outliers and some who just kind of keep quiet, but most of them are Trump supporters. I don't expect anybody really in the Trump world or the Trump inner circle is going to go to prison because of what happened on January 6th. That's not to say I don't think laws were broken. I'm certain laws were broken. I think they'll get away with it. 
The important thing for the January 6th commission and for those members is, can you win the battle in the court of public opinion? And that's not easy to do because I don't think a lot of Americans are really paying attention to this. There's a lot of other things going on in their lives, and certainly Ukraine is a bigger issue. But looking forward, it's almost certain that Donald Trump will be the nominee in 2024, and there'll likely be a rematch between Trump and Joe Biden. And should we elect somebody again that committed these egregious acts on January 6th? I think that's going to be a question that this country faces, and I don't think we can rely on the courts and the criminal justice system to solve that problem for America. I'm afraid on that note, that's all the time we have on this edition of Encounter. I'd like to thank my guest, John Fortier, resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and Jim Kessler, executive vice president for policy at Third Way. As always, a wonderful conversation. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter on The Voice of America. America.